Welcome to another episode of the SIDCast. My name is Sid Finkelstein. I'm a professor at Dartmouth College, and this podcast is all about people that are interesting, fascinating, have great stories to tell, and things that all of us can learn from. If your town or neighborhood has a coffee shop or a diner, even a local hangout that everyone knows, then you probably already know about Lou's. Sometimes a place like Lou's even becomes an institution. You know, local movers and shakers couldn't make a deal without first having breakfast there. A lot of Dartmouth College students couldn't imagine spending four years in Hanover, uh, New Hampshire, and not going there. And, of course, local kids keep coming back every time they visit to make sure they end up uh, hanging out at, 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 at Lou's. But have you ever really gone behind the scenes to talk to the person who owns that place and spend some time to understand, you know, why he's chosen to be there? What's his, what's his story? Well, we, uh, we did. Uh, Jared Burke is the fourth owner of Luz since it was founded in uh, 1947. And his backstory is something you might not be expecting. A graduate of the Naval Academy, one of the top MBA programs in the world, a helicopter pilot flying ops all over Africa and the Middle East, and a young officer with responsibility for the lives of men, many men who served under him. On this episode of the SIDCast, we talked to Jared about that journey and even managed to sample one of those amazing loose curlers that over the years I probably had a little too many of. So grab a cup of coffee and here we go. Jared Burke. Welcome to another episode of the SIDCast. I'm Sid Finkelstein and I'm here at uh, Lou's Restaurant on Main Street in Hanover with, uh, with Jared Burke. Hey, Jared, how you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. Jared owns the place, uh, and so I uh, appreciate you taking some time off. Uh, people can, uh, people can, listening in can hear a lot of uh, background sound. People are enjoying all sorts of yummy things at, uh, at Lou's. Um, but I want to talk to, uh, start our conversation, Jared, by, by kind of going back to when you were growing up. You grew up in, in um, suburbs of New York, I think, right? That's correct. Right, around New, New Rochelle. Right. So um, what, um, what did your family do? Like your parents, what kind of work did they do? Yeah, so uh, growing up, my... So I'll go back a little, a little further and give you a little bit of background. So my grandfather on my, on my dad's side came over, came through Ellis Island, uh, escaped the Holocaust. Uh, and uh, he came over with his mother and his sister. Most of his extended family was uh, was actually killed in the Holocaust, and so he grew up, you know, really living in a in the back of a store, of a retail store. That How was, old was he when he came? He over? was uh, about two years old when he came. Two years two old. Two years old. Who yep. brought him? Uh, it was him and his mother. So so. Um, Funny story. His his uh, aunt actually had tickets to come to the U.S. Uh, she decided that she wanted to stay, and so she gave up the tickets to her sister. She wanted uh, to so stay was, in what country? In, this was in Poland. In Poland. Yeah. And yep. that was she didn't survive. She didn't yeah. survive. No. So she gave the tickets to her sister. Right. Which is, I guess, your great great grandmother. Great grandmother. Yeah. And her and she and her two-year-old, right. who was your grandfather, right. Right. came over. What year was that? Oh, jeez. <laughs> was it, was I, it during the war? Or before the war? No, it was before the war. It was, it was, before it was, the war. It was pretty well before. Because um, yeah. mid thirties or late thirties? Uh, I was. I would have said late twenties. Oh, late twenties. Uh, late late twenties, early thirties. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So, um, and why did they come to New York? So they, they had family there, and it was, um, again, they came through Ellis Island. I think that was kind of their, the option that they had at the time. Yeah. Um, and so they were fairly poor growing up, uh, again, living with uh, relatives. Uh, my, again, my grandfather spent some time living in the back of a, of a store, of a retail store in, in the garment district. 
Uh, and so growing up, you know, he didn't have very much. Uh, eventually, they moved to New Haven, Connecticut, and then um, he got into the garment industry uh, through uh, a, a one of his relatives. And he started selling fabric out of the back of his his car or a, a, you know, so, something of that sort. And and yeah, got involved in the garment industry and, and really built this life. Um, so when I was a young kid, my and my dad worked for his his father, um, my grandfather. They had a couple factories. They had a few in New York City. They had some in Puerto Rico, some in the Carolinas. So, but he started with with nothing, right? And so he built nothing. this. He built a real business. A true, true entrepreneur. Yeah. yeah. And um, did you have a lot of time with him? Did he? I mean, yeah. So yeah. did you did you ever ask him like how'd you do this that grandfather yeah and he's the type of guy he's a humble guy you know and he yeah. just um, uh, the the way he told it was that he just kind of stumbled into it and kept yeah. at it and uh, I, I think he felt like he was very fortunate but I also I also yeah. know that he worked worked hard to get there a lot of people stumble into a lot of things but they don't always uh, right they don't always succeed right exactly yeah wow okay so go ahead so, so he had these uh, these couple of factories and, right right um, and so he would he would be Manufacturing clothes, garments Correct. of some type yep. for um, for stores or for wholesalers or another. He didn't yep. have a brand around his. No, they, they actually sold to uh, like Kmart and and those type of uh, and, okay. and they sold like their you know their private label type of type of uh, clothes. So when I was young, so this was in the in the late '80s, they kind of realized that the business outlook wasn't very good. You know, a lot of manufacturing was moving to China. Uh, it was becoming very expensive, and so they really they just shut down the business. Um, and I, I was, I'd say, I was probably about nine or ten years old when that happened. And so they they took the proceeds from the business, which um, you know wasn't wasn't a huge amount, but it was it was enough. And they basically invested that money and and became kind of their own. Uh, Private investors. They, they, my my dad, my uncle, so my dad's brother and my grandfather had a small office in Rochelle, and they managed this little fund that they had, uh, and they, they really just lived off the proceeds of that. Early um, private equity is that what yeah, we're hearing? Basically, yeah. It was mostly stocks and bonds and things yeah, like that. Sure. Um, but it was enough that you know, again, when I was ten, before that, my dad, you know, he was on the six o'clock train to New York City. And then he would get home at six or seven at night, and I, I never never saw him uh, very much. But then yeah. again, when I was about ten years old, uh, he uh, they kind of made this transition, and then he was home a lot. So it was a, it was a, a big change, mm. uh, and I was really fortunate to, to first of all that my parents were uh, you know, stayed together, which is which seems uncommon these days, uh, and second that I was able to spend a lot of really right. you know good quality time with with my dad. Sure, um, you know and. and I, I believe that uh, one of the big kind of recipes for success for kids is just being, uh, you know, having having a decent family and, and feeling loved. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was incredibly fortunate to grow up like that. Yeah, um, yeah. That I mean, that theme. I, in a way, it sounds kind of obvious, except not everybody really appreciates it. But I have to say that theme has come out in a bunch of um, with a bunch of our guests yeah. in all sorts of ways on the Sidcast from. Uh, I guess the most common way is there's a parent that sees something uh, about their kid, some yeah. potential spark about some, whether it's, you know, maybe you should be on the on the bongos, uh, um, maybe, uh, you know, you, you, you look like you like to draw a lot, here's a little sketchbook. Yeah. Um, 
and you like uh, you like music um, may, maybe you know we'll take you some lessons and maybe maybe all parents do a lot of parents do that I don't know but this is this is like really fundamental for so many people that have been you know somewhat successful in their in, in whatever endeavor they ended up in yeah yeah I, I believe it I believe it yeah and it's you know again I, I didn't I wasn't we were a typical I would say middle class family yeah um, you know I, I grew up in New Rochelle so I went to public schools my whole life. Really, uh, when I went yeah. to Tuck, was the first non uh, non public school that I went to. Because yeah. uh, even my college experience was a was a federal academy. Uh, so sure. you know, I, I think that that was a that was a huge contributor. And again, I'm, I'm I feel I feel really fortunate that I that I grew up like that. So let me ask you a couple of things about that background. So sure. um, it's your grandfather that um, uh, escaped from what became the Holocaust. So he uh, he was Jewish, I take it. Yes. Yeah. And you have uh, you have people still back in anywhere in, in Europe or? No, not not that I have ever kept in touch with or, or, or yeah. anything like that. Because um, because again, yeah, you know that that whole side of the family uh, unfortunately passed. Um, right. In the Holocaust, my great grandfather was he was actually a captain in the Polish army. Uh, really. He he died when my grandfather was in utero. So he, he wow. uh, yeah, he was killed, wow. and, then, and then that's that was really the impetus for my great grandmother to come to the U.S. What uh, what uh, what part of Poland was it? I I'm not sure. I I'm I'm sure I eventually you get around to doing the <laughs> uh, the ancestry.com exactly, and the 23 yeah. and Me and all the other stuff. Yeah, because who knows? We could be related because my uh, great grandparents and, and uh, grandparents all from all from Poland, different mm-hmm. parts of Poland. Um, so, this thing about being in the restaurant business—was yeah. there anything preordained about that? Um, sure. Yeah. yeah. So, so my other uncle. Uh, so my, my my dad had uh, two brothers and a sister. My my other uncle, the one that, that he wasn't uh, in, in the in the garment business with, he was actually a restaurateur. So, from the time he you know uh, went off on his own and, yeah, and sure. you know went to college. He started opening bars and restaurants and, and things like that. And he has one restaurant that is still very successful in New York City. And Which at the time, it? it's called Caliente Cab Company Restaurants. It's on 7th Avenue and Bleecker Street. Okay, you got so, a little shout out for, for the restaurant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, founded in 81, I believe. Wow. So, so he, he again. He owned multiple restaurants. Some were were successful. Some some were not. This one was um, was very successful and continues to be. And so, at this time uh, in the early '90s, again when when my when my dad made this transition out of the garment industry, um, my uncle had a partner who uh, it was not really working out. And so my dad uh, and, and his other brother and my grandfather bought the other half of this restaurant business. And so, again, from the time that I was, you know, about about 10, 11 years old, this business, uh, this restaurant business was in our family. Do you remember, like, you were in the restaurant, so you're kind of hanging out there yeah, sometimes? I, I mean, again, it, it, growing up in New Rochelle, was, you know, a 30-minute drive or so, so so it wasn't like I was there all the time. Um, but we, we certainly went down uh, often. And, and, you know, again, I wasn't, I wasn't hanging out in the kitchen and, you know, as, as a little kid, but... I was close enough to it that I I knew I knew what it took mm-hmm. I, knew, I knew I knew enough about the yeah, restaurant. Yeah, it was a crazy idea to, be, to yeah. be buying and running a restaurant, which is what you're doing now. Absolutely, especially with all the all the failures that the failure you know, rate is very high. That's right, right, right. And actually, the truth of it is, when you know the, the when you actually look at the data, 
the failure rate on restaurants is is equivalent with all other businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, most startups are going to fail in the first three years, and, and restaurants really follow that that um, uh, that path. It's just that I think restaurants are a lot more visible. You know, when you, when you see a restaurant open and close and shutter their doors, it's, right. it's a lot more kind of visceral. Yeah, you pay attention to it. Maybe you've gone there. People, you you talk exactly. about exactly. So the failure rate's pretty much the same as any other in any other industry. Correct. Yeah, that's something I didn't I didn't realize. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think it's 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 a bit of a uh, misperception. Yeah, um, but but really that's that's the case. Right. Well, let's go back to to kind of growing up. Sure. What got you interested in the military? So the, that same grandfather I was talking about, uh, he he spent some time in the army as a medic. Uh, my other grandfather, my my mom's uh, father, was in the navy. So he enlisted in the navy in World War II. Uh, so he was a coxswain on landing craft. And actually landed on on Normandy Beach. Wow. Did he talk about that? A little bit, not very much. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he, he really enjoyed his time in the Navy. And then my dad was in the Coast Guard for a little while, so there was some there was some military mm-hmm. uh, experience in my family. And and being a veteran was it was extremely uh, important to my mom's dad, the the, the uh, uh, Jack who, who was in the Navy, and then even my dad's da- uh, dad. He, it was something that he felt really passionate about spending time in the army. Part of their part of their identity as people, really. exactly, and they're yeah. proud of that. Right, right. Yeah. So no one ever really pushed me, but you know, when I was probably in middle school, it was a time when I was looking at colleges and kind of starting to think about what I was going to do with my life. And West Point, the Naval Academy, sparked my interest, and it became this goal that I had that you know seemed really far off. Uh, it seemed like I would never be able to achieve it, but it was a good goal to maintain, yeah. nonetheless. And so it, it was this dream, and so I kind of worked towards it through, you know, throughout middle school and then and then throughout high school, and, and did all the things that I, I kind of knew I needed to to do in order right. to get accepted. Yeah. Right. And I felt like even if I didn't get accepted to one of the academies, then it would be, you know, it would, it would help me nonetheless. And it was one of those things that I, you know, I had this goal of, of going to an academy, but I, I really didn't think very much past that. <laughs> so it's pretty good at a middle schooler. You were even that clear about a goal. A lot, yeah. a lot of middle schoolers are not quite there. Right, right, and yeah, and and you know, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say I was like hard and fast, and, and you know, sure. this is what I was going to do. But but it was a goal. It was it was something that I mm-hmm. that I had looked forward to, and and, and mm-hmm. thought would be really really an interesting yep. path. And so, I, again, I, I worked towards it. Uh, somehow, the grace of God, I got accepted. So where did you go, actually, for... I, I went to Nil- the Naval Academy. I went to Annapolis. So that's the number one place you can go if you're going to be in the Navy. Is that right? The most prestigious place. I would say so. You should say so. <laughs> it is. It, it, it is. What, so what's the time, the time frame we're talking about? Was this before or after 9-11? This was before 9-11. So this, so I, I left in June of 2000. You you graduated June of 2000. You no, know, I, I started. You My, started. So June of 2000. So this, and so a year and and just beginning of that of your second year, I guess your sophomore year, right? In college in, yep. in the Naval Academy, 9/11 happened. Right. Do you remember that morning? I do. What I do. Crystal clear. What what happened? So I was. I remember walking. I was walking back from class. It was a calculus class, and. 
I was walking back to my, my dorm room, uh, if you will, and someone had their, their TV on. We, we had this system where we could actually watch TV through our computers, but it was only like C-SPAN and, you know, it was, it was these channels that nobody would this watch. This is early streaming? <laughs> yeah, exactly, early streaming. But there was even like a little cable plug in the back of our, okay. our PCs. And so I was walking back and I heard somebody's TV on, which I thought was really strange. Mm -hmm. And it, I, as I got a little closer, I could tell that they were watching the news. And again, I was like, that's, that's kind of weird. Uh, so I got back to my, my floor. And as soon as I got back, somebody said to me, you know, hey, did you hear what happened? And I said, no. And, and they said, uh, you know, a plane hit one of the, one of the World Trade Center towers. And so immediately I went back to my room and, and turned on the TV. And this time, again, my family was in New York. Um, I, had, uh, I had some relatives that were working in the financial district, so I was, I was obviously very concerned. Tried to make some, some phone calls, and the phones were, were not working at, at, the, at the moment. You know, and then shortly thereafter, we found out a plane had hit the Pentagon. And so things at the Naval Academy went, uh, went into high gear really, really fast. And it was something that, again, pre-9-11, uh, we weren't used to. So they have these these threat conditions, you know, this threat con alpha through delta, and we we went from really nothing where any anybody could just drive through the gate and drive around the naval academy uh -huh. to this position where we were at threat con delta, which we had you know marines at the gate with uh, with rifles and, and combat gear, and no one was allowed in or out. How, how quickly did that happen? Within like that, hours. Within uh, hours. Yeah, oh yeah. So there was a plan in place. Absolutely. Yeah. Although. It, there's a plan in place, but that, that I guess that assumes or presupposes that there are planners that were thinking about that that the mil that military post that fundament like the Pentagon was hit, right? Um, uh, that that the fundamental kind of institutions of America yeah. uh, could be under attack. Absolutely, and, and we including certainly including the schools and the top schools. Right? Absolutely, yeah. We, being that close to DC, we, we certainly were, were fearful that we were going to be a target. Yeah. Wow. Wow. I remember, um, I remember that day. It's kind of ironic in that I was at Lou's for breakfast in the morning. Um, I had my car parked. I'm pointing out here to Main Street here in Hanover, New Hampshire. And um, I got back in the car and I turned on the the radio's on and you start hearing what what happened and they didn't know exactly what it was first they said it was a small plane nobody really knew and then you go you go home I went home right away turned on the TV and started to see what happened then the phone starts ringing because um, um, I'm in New York a lot and one of my brothers calls says where are you uh, I'm here and uh, um, and then you start hearing the story then you can't stop watching TV and you know while there's no I don't think there's a precedent for anything like this. I, mean, I don't know if you go back to things like Civil War, or the War of Independence, for this type of, you know, for things of this nature. But it reminded me, as I'm talking now, I'm thinking about, you know, other events like this. Um, and I was a kid of five when President Kennedy was shot. And there's an entire generation that could tell you exactly where they were at that time when they heard. And I know where I was. I was at a street corner waiting for my friend around the block to meet me. We'd walked to elementary school together. And this was in Canada, not even in the U.S. And he was an American living in Canada. His family was American. And he told me what happened. And we walked to school and everyone talked about it. And then even um, the Challenger spacecraft, 1986, I was in graduate school. And I remember that 
crystal clear. You just they they they, they just kind of go deep into your into your into your brain. Yeah, and you never forget that. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Um, let's uh, let's take a short a short break, um, and when we come back. I want to I want to kind of talk to Jared a little bit more about what happened in the immediate aftermath of 9/11 for you personally and at the Naval Academy, and then kind of take you into your career in the, in the military. We'll Sounds be great. we'll be right back from Lou's and with Jared Burke. Welcome back to the Sidcast. We're here at Lou's with Jared Burke, and we were uh, we were just talking about uh, what you experienced, what you felt. Um, 9/11 when you were in the in the um, Naval Academy. So what? So there was kind of a lockdown. You went to kind of the highest level of of, uh, of protection and, and readiness. What what happened after that? Yeah, so we you know we stayed there. We didn't have class for I, I believe a day or two, uh, and it was. You know, it's it's strange. It was it was scary, but it was also there was like a there was an energy around the place, mm-hmm. um, and everyone, you know, everyone felt this ownership of protecting our you know protecting our school and and, and that type of thing. And, and you know, in, in the coming weeks and and, and uh, months after, you know, when we when we actually went to war, uh, the the atmosphere really changed. And, and I think I think looking back on it, you see it more and you can feel it more than than when we were actually there because you know uh, even something like that happening over a couple of days is the time stretches out. But uh, this sense of mission, I think, was felt by by really everyone there. Uh, and it's interesting when you go from a peacetime military to a wartime military. Um, and now we're kind of transitioning back to a peacetime military. Uh, it, you know, the focus changes. It's just like it's just like being a you know a soccer player and, and preparing for a game. You know, if, if if you don't have a game that you're preparing for and you just practice all the time, it uh, it's hard to be really motivated and and kind of uh, you know excited by spending all this time in the military and and, and and all these sacrifices that you're making. Whereas you know when you when there is a mission. Uh, it, it really justifies the yeah. time and effort. And did did, it, did things change in, in the classroom? Even I wouldn't say in the classroom, but but uh, and, and again, this this change was slow to happen mm-hmm. because we you know we didn't we didn't invade Afghanistan. Even that was really quiet uh, for several months uh, or maybe several weeks. And then and then you know OIF uh, where we invaded Iraq didn't happen until uh, years later. So, you know, by the time by the time I was getting towards graduation, we were in OEF. Uh, uh, OEF. Uh, uh, sorry, Operation Iraqi Freedom, um, and then uh, OEF, which is Operation Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan and, and kind of throughout the Middle East. We were our, we were pretty uh, deep into that battle as well, and so. You know, between when I started and when I graduated, the outlook of what I was going to do in my military it career completely was completely changed. Didn't it? Completely changed. Yeah. So let me let me ask this. I know you signed up for this. You went. You, you, you knew this could happen. Not necessarily 9/11, but war. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Were you afraid? No. I mean, I was young and full of piss and vinegar, and <laughs> you know, and I wanted something to do. And, and I think you, you'll find that with anyone who joins the military, just about anyone. Yeah. You know, the, the when you're 18, 20, 25 years old, you know, you just don't have the fear or, um, you know, maybe hesitation that... Maybe that's required to do what you do. Well, I, I think there's a reason why, you know, military recruits are young. Yeah. And, and you know, they're, they're not looking for older older men to join the military because I, right. think, I think there would be some some second guessing to the missions that you take and, and things like that. Yeah. So, you know, I, th- I think everybody was excited. Um, How soon after graduation were you deployed? 
So I, at the Naval Academy, you, you have a couple different options, right? You can you can go into the Navy and you can be a, a surface warfare officer where you drive ships or a submarine officer or, uh, or a pilot in the Navy. About 25% of the class goes into the Marine Corps because the Marine Corps is a part of the Department of the Navy. Uh, about a quarter of the class goes, goes into the Marines. And so during my time there, I was always very impressed by the Marine officers that were there. You know, again, because about 25% of the class goes to the Marines, about 25% of the faculty were Marines as well. And these uh, men and women were just in incredibly impressive. Uh, great leaders, great mentors, very professional. Uh, and, and, you know, it, it became the life I wanted to lead. Uh, I had some, some incredible mentors. Uh, that were Marines and and, uh, and and people that I looked up to. And so I, I ended up joining the Marine Corps uh, after graduation. I ended up becoming a pilot in the Marine Corps. And so for me, it took about two years for me to go through the basic officer's course, which is a six-month-long uh, course where you, you really learn infantry basics. Um, and then flight school, which was about 18 months. And so it took me two years or so to get out to the, the operating forces. And then my first deployment was in 2007. So it's three years. Three years after I graduated, mm -hmm. um, and I went to Eastern Africa, uh, Djibouti, Africa, for my for my first actual deployment. And what was that mission about? That was a search and rescue mission. So there there were some operations going on in Eastern Africa and the Arabian Peninsula, uh, and we the aircraft I flew, which is called the CH-53, it was a it was a heavy lift, long range cargo helicopter. We had some capabilities that most other aircraft don't, uh, and mainly it was aerial refueling and the ability to put a lot of stuff inside. So we were on a search and rescue mission. Uh, really, if you know if somebody got hurt or got into trouble, we our mission was to go pick them up, uh, basically throughout the entire Eastern Africa uh, region, and then also the, uh, the the Arabian Peninsula, so Yemen, that, that area. And so, and were you physically deployed there in Africa or in the yes. U.S.? Yeah, I was physically deployed. These are, there. These, so this is a long-range craft. Yes. So yeah. why why would it be a long-range craft if you're there in the field of action? Um, so if you think, you know, we, so there were some humanitarian missions going on in Ethiopia, for example, uh, in Kenya, and we were in Djibouti. So that was, uh, that was about an 800-mile flight, mm -hmm. uh, if my math is correct. And the typical helicopter can only do about 250, 300 miles. So we were based in, in Djibouti, Africa, and we had the ability to, um, to fly all the way down to Kenya to yeah. pick somebody up. Uh, again, whether it was you know humanitarian type of mission or, or something so, like that. So how does that actually work? So you're the pilot. There's a co-pilot. Right. Um, then there's on the aircraft there are Marines, correct, ready to go and do the search, actual search and rescue. Yeah. So we when we were there we had a crew of five on the aircraft. So it was, uh, it was uh, me a co-pilot and then three air crewmen, and this air crewmen who were our gunners, and then we we were working with Air Force Special Operations. Uh, at the time, so we had a crew of um, uh, they, they call them PJs. They are uh, pararescue uh, operators, so they're part of the special forces community. Each one of them is uh, they have pretty advanced medical training, and so uh, and then also some some combat training as well, and, and, and a lot of capabilities. So if somebody were again were to get hurt, we were going to fly them in with some of their vehicles. Um, they would make contact with uh, with a person that was uh, that was hurt. Would and your then, aircraft actually land somewhere, or yes. they parachute out? Uh, we could do either. Oh yeah, and we were prepared for either. Yeah. Yeah. So depending on where we were going and, and kind of what the uh, what the situation was, we would decide. Did you ever have any 
situations that were particularly hairy and during that so, time. So the interesting thing about that type of mission, a search and rescue mission, is, is you do a whole lot more training than executing. Uh, and, and we did that. And there were some certainly some scary nights. You know, we, we had to be ready 24 hours a day, whether there was a moon or not, uh, to land really anywhere. And so we trained a lot for that. And, and honestly, we've lost a lot of people uh, in training accidents, even in Djibouti, Africa. Um, a couple of years before I got there, two aircraft collided uh, and killed, uh, killed everybody on board, except for two people. Um, so, so I would say the hairy moments that we had were, were really in training. So, yeah, so my, basically my first two deployments were to, to Eastern Africa. I did a three-month one there, came back for six months, and then went back for another six months. Uh, then I came home for a while. I did a deployment to Afghanistan, to southern Afghanistan. Uh, and then my final, my fourth deployment was on a ship. And so we, uh, that was, I, I was in Afghanistan in 2010, and then I did a shipboard deployment in 2012. You were a pilot at that time as well? Yes, sir. You were landing aircraft on the ship? Correct. What? Yeah. What is that like? That is, during the day, it's fun. At night, it is super scary because <laughs> it's, a, it's a moving ship. Uh, again, at night, especially dark nights where there's no moon, you really don't have a horizon, so there's not a whole lot to look at. Uh, you, vertigo comes on very quickly and very easily. And, you know, it's big helicopter on a little, a little spot to land with not a whole lot of room on either side. So yeah. it, it definitely is a little hairy. Um, but you train for it and you get used to it. Uh, not to say that, that we didn't have some scary nights, but uh, sure. it's just, that's the name of the game. And that's, that's what, you know. How, how many years were you in the military? So I was in the, in the Marine Corps for 11 years. For 11 years? Yes. And you, so you retired at what level or, or position? So I got out as a captain. Yep. Um, I, I did some time in the reserves, in the inactive reserves, and I was selected for major. Um, but, but I was already really out at the time. And, you know, that was, uh, it was certainly a formative time in my life. And, and, you know, one of the things you talked about is kind of how I, how I ended up in this situation uh, where, you know, being an owner of a restaurant. You know, being a, being a captain in the Marine Corps is a, it's a really incredible uh, experience. You know, especially as a pilot, but even even as a ground, you know, as a ground commander or something like that, the amount of responsibility that you have is just uh, unreal. You know, here I was in my late twenties. I was in charge of a twenty-five million dollar aircraft. I had a crew of five. Uh, many times, I was I was in charge of multiple aircraft. So I was a, I was a leader of a flight of aircraft. Uh, I have twenty-four Marines in the back. You know, all, all look at me, looking at me to keep them safe. Total autonomy, you know, to um, to execute the mission, and uh, again, that, that amount of responsibility, that that purpose, and then the mastery that I felt uh, for my aircraft and for my mission was just uh, was just incredible. Uh, and unfortunately, that that really was like the peak for me, you know, because um, you're not really at that staff officer the, level. The peak in terms of what? I would say fulfillment. Um, it was just the best. Uh, just the, the, the you know the most fulfilled that I've I've felt as far as um, you know not only with work but fulfilling your potential as a human being correct your capability yeah. Yeah. and yeah. did you know that that was part of what you were signing up for when you first went to school and no did I mean, you have any any it, you know any thought that that's kind of what would happen or could happen. Like many other things, you know, you have an idea of what something is going to be like, and, and yeah. it, it looks really cool from the outside, but until you're there and, mm -hmm. and you really have all the details and, and understand what's involved, even even like, you know, even this, you know, even owning this restaurant or, or being a professor, you know, you have this idea of what that would be like, and of course, the reason that you pursue it is because it sounds great and it's, it sounds like it's going to be yeah. a really good time for you. 
But until you're there and, and you're actually experiencing it, there's so many unknowns and there's so many things that you don't know. Um, I, I don't think I, I realized how, um, again, how fulfilled that would make me feel uh, and how, how uh, important that was going to be in my life. But I certainly knew that it was something that I wanted to do and, I, and, I, and it was, you know, that was a goal that I was, that I was moving towards. Uh, and, and, yeah, uh, I wonder whether this is something that has a challenge in the transition from military to civilian life for a lot of people it, it because there's, is. the stakes are so high it's li- it, it is life and death yeah. and even if a military vet doesn't have as much responsibility as, as you had or, or more but they still were engaged in something where people are people are dying near them and that sometimes their job is to kill somebody absolutely and that's just not the way the real world works right right uh, the normal world works and so the transition has got to be difficult it is incredibly hard um, and and I think um, I think that really contributes to a lot of issues that people have coming out of the military. You know, there, there's a lot of talk about PTSD and all this other stuff. And I I think there, PTSD is, is very real. Um, but I think that there's a lot more people that experience this uh, this transition and and have a hard time with it. And, and that's what makes it difficult. It may not be what they what they experienced or what they saw in combat that that you know left this mark on them. But oftentimes it's it's losing some of that purpose and, and that yeah. Um, you know the uh, the responsibility that they have. We, yeah, we talk uh, we talk in the Sidcast a lot about meaning and finding meaning in life. Right. And you're using the word pur- purpose and mission. That's sure. what we're talking about the same thing. Yeah. And you truly know why you exist on the face of the earth right. when you're doing that. Right. You know that purpose, and it's meaningful for you, and it's meaningful for the people around you, sure. and you. And so you're you're living, yeah. and then you got to rediscover what that is. Absolutely. Now everybody has to. So this is what's kind of interesting that everyone has to figure out what their meaning and their purpose is but at a pretty young age in the military that purpose and that meaning is is crystal clear and and you're living it and most people don't have that kind of drop off where they have to kind of figure it out all over again exactly um they they have to still get there but they um they could be going through their step-by-step process right right yeah I also think it's it's a lot more micro than than people realize. You what know, do you mean? A lot of people ask me about my political feelings about being in Afghanistan and you know the the, the missions that we that we were involved in. And quite honestly, it's not something that you really think or talk about uh, when you're actually there. Uh, th- that again, that purpose that I felt, uh, that mission that I felt, it was so much more t- to the people around me. You know, the the, the people that that I was really close with than, you know, this this grander mission that we had to, um, you know, bring the Afghani people a better life and, and rid the, the, the country of terrorism. You know, of course that was something that we, that was in our mind, but the reality is that I woke up every day and I worked really hard every day because I knew that there was another Marine that was relying on me to do so. Um, and I didn't want to let my, my friends down. I didn't want to let the Marines that were counting on me down. And that was really where that purpose came from. Yeah. Uh, and, right. you know, and even later on in life, like, you know, what you're doing, I, I think so much of it comes down to the, the people that you're around. And, and people that you're there. And that's really interesting. So it's not necessarily the bigger, I mean, for some people it might be, but not that sure. bigger vision, the political dynamics of what you're trying to accomplish. Exactly. It's that you're, you're here in a tough situation with people that are your family at that point right. in time. Right. Yeah. Um, 
that seems to me a big challenge in organizations more generally when especially today when people come and go all over the right, place right. you know how, how do you create that that sense of, of mission and, and, and team when actually so in a business you're the owner of this company of this business of this restaurant no one else is the owner and so they their their connection has got to be is different in a in a bigger company you know, a lot of managers might be shareholders, but tiny, 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 nothing compared to the CEO or sure. any of the senior executives. Yeah. And and so the con- the connection that you're looking to make with the overall organization is a it's a it's actually very challenging. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. This this idea of ownership too, which I think is, is you know ownership in the um, not in the in the shareholder sense, but but ownership in a mission or um, you know. Uh, there's a, there's there are many ways you can look at ownership, but but trying to instill that feeling that the people that work here, the people that um, you know are part of Blues and have been for so many years, uh, have this sense of ownership that that, that this is theirs. You know, this is because because Blues is just a it's just a logo. You know, it's just a brand. It's a it's a space on Main Street. The thing that makes Lose what it is is that people take ownership. That people are, are they have pride in what they do. You know, they, they want to provide a good experience and you know, great meal, uh, and and people to walk out of here happy. Right. And trying to instill that in people sometimes is difficult, especially especially where you're a little bit removed. You know, the back of the house here. Trying to instill that sense of ownership is, is sometimes really hard. Right. Um, and right. I think that that right. extends well, well beyond this industry. Uh, it's something that you certainly feel in the military. Because you know, if I again, if I screw up and I crash the airplane, uh, it's it's, it's kind of easy to see it there, right? Uh, but it's harder when the stakes are lower, exactly. As in just you know having a job or just ha- being successful in a business, yeah. So um, let's uh, let let's break for um, for a minute, and when we come back, I'm gonna be uh, I'm interested in what you how you've applied your life lessons from the military and that that. That experience you've just been describing to running a little a little restaurant in a little town in uh, in New England. Absolutely. All right, we'll be right back with Jared Burke. And now a commercial break for Luz. I know you know Luz is pretty lucky because I'm talking to Jared Burke and it's a great place and I enjoy it. But uh, they're not paying me or the Sidcast anything for this little commercial. So there you go. But the reason I'm uh, I'm bringing it up in this way is that today is actually the one year anniversary of. Uh, when Jared Burke first started uh, owning the, uh, the 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 diner Lou's, and one year is a, is quite a hallmark. It's uh, it's an exciting uh, place to be, and so um, congratulations to Jared. We'd sing you happy birthday if we could, uh, but uh, instead we'll get right back to the conversation. Welcome back to Lou's and the Sidcast and Jared Burke, and so Jared, you um, you bought Lou's. The classic Lou's in Hanover, New Hampshire, um, in uh, I think July of 2018. Correct. So, why why do you want to do this, and how did this all happen? <laughs> that's a that's a great question. Um, so, we're, again, we were talking about this sense of mission and purpose and autonomy, and you know how how that was such an important part of my life, and you know part of my life that I really uh, really enjoyed. And so when I, I went to the tech school, uh, after I got in the military, I kind of, I knew I wanted to go do something else. I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. And so the logical next step was to go back to school. So I went to the tech school. Uh, I kind of followed the crowd into consulting and started 
you know, down that road. And luckily, before I started the interviewing process, I, I decided that this was nothing close to what I wanted in life. And so uh, I, I changed my path. And I started going down the general management path, and I, you know, was looking at these these development programs, these um, you know leadership development programs at these big companies. And I spent the summer at New Balance, which was great. I had a blast, but I, I quickly realized that I, I didn't want to be a cog in the wheel, and that the the command that I had, um, you know, just being in command, was something that I really missed. You know, I really missed working with people. Uh, I really missed the leadership aspect and the management aspect. And, and that was the thing that made me tick. That was the thing that got me excited and, and made me want to wake up in the morning and jump out of bed and go do something. And so I went a little bit of a different path than most of my classmates. You know, most of my classmates went into banking or consulting or whatever. Uh, and I really didn't want to do that. And, and I know most of those people are going to have these great careers and become leaders eventually. But uh, I guess I just didn't have the patience for it. Yeah. And so I decided I wanted to stay in Hanover. Uh, I have three kids, and, and they were in the school system here. And we just we loved our neighbors, and, and we loved the town. And so I, I, you know, I made the commitment that, hey, we're going to stay here. I'm going to stop moving my kids around every couple of years like I had been doing uh, you know, really for the decade prior. And uh, I got a job up here. I, I worked right across the street from, from Lou's, actually, at a, at a software company called Bionic Advertising Systems, and I ran, I ran the marketing and sales department there. But while I was there, and, and really during my second year at Talk, I was, I was looking. I was looking for opportunities to, to, to be in the leadership position again. So I, I got a great tip from a friend, and he asked me what, you know, who I was talking to, and, and he said, you should really be talking to an accountant. And I said, you know, why would I be talking to an accountant? I don't, I don't have a business, I don't have a deal yet. You know, I, do, I do my own taxes on TurboTax. He's like, no, 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 you know, accountants know everything that's going on in every business in the Upper Valley. And I said, that is brilliant. I can't believe I didn't think about this. And he said, yeah, you should talk to some attorneys too, because, you know, business lawyers, because they'll know what's going on as well. And so I met with, uh, he, he was an accountant, I met with a partner at his firm and told him what I was looking for and, you know, my background, I gave him my resume. We, we had a nice, a nice long chat and he said, he'll get back to me if, if anything comes up. And so about a week later, he came back to me and said, hey, I have, I have a couple things in mind that you may want to take a look at. And some of them were, you know, businesses that probably wouldn't work out, you know, snowplow business and things like that, that just um, didn't have the scale and didn't have the, um, the ability to grow or, or, you know, it'd be hard to finance, things like that. And one of them, you know, he said, he said, what do you think about restaurants? And I said, absolutely not. You know, I grew up in the restaurant absolutely industry. Absolutely not. I've There's seen no it. Way. I'm not going there. Yeah. <laughs> and he said, well, he's like, I, I think you should take a look at this one. And so he showed me uh, just a rough income statement, um, which looked pretty good. And then he said, and what if I told you they close at three every day? And so I'm like, okay, I think I have an idea of what this, <laughs> what, what we're talking about here. You know, and he said, well, you know, in addition, it's, it's not just a restaurant, it's a bakery and they have a catering business as well. And um, the owners have owned it for 27 years and they've had a, you know, a, a very good time. And you should take, you know, think about it. And so I thought about it a little bit and I, I called him back and said, hey, I'd really like to talk to the owners and see, just sit down with them. And so my wife and I, Spent about two hours with Toby and Patty Freed, who were the previous owners of Blues, and just and just talked to them. And you know, one of the first things that I noticed was that uh, Toby is like the spitting image of, of one of my uncles, um, <laughs> the uncle that worked with my dad so closely. They just have the same mannerisms, and they're mm -hmm. it's it's crazy. They're like the same person. You know? And Toby Toby's an interesting guy. He he went to Northeastern. He was an engineer, he was a mechanical engineer for several years. Uh, went to culinary school on the weekends because he loved uh, cooking and, and food. And worked at Vermont Mountain Creamery for a while, and then he bought Lou's when he was 27, uh, when he was 37, same age as me. And 
uh, you know, and, and he had a, a very successful time. And so after talking about that, talking to them and learning about the business, uh, it became clear that this was this was a great a great opportunity. Uh, and you know, because of the size of the business and some other uh, kind of factors, it became something that I was able to do on my own. So a lot of my classmates have gone into this you know, search fund um, kind of route where they pair up with a private equity firm, and the private equity firm buys the business and kind of makes them the CEO. But this was small enough, and um, I had strong enough recurring revenue that I was able to raise uh, some debt, a whole lot of debt, <laughs> uh, scary enough, and uh, and I was able to do it on my own. And it's been it's been the most incredible experience uh, so far in this first year. And um, so the previous owners, uh, they really wanted to see, because Lou's is a landmark, has been here even before they were the owners, yeah. um, when I think Lou the guy, was running it. Yeah. Um, but they wanted to see this as a as an ongoing successful business, right? Because uh, it's uh, it's part of kind of the birthright of the town. It's, uh, Absolutely, it's a classic place. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when I mentioned that, you know, that the first time we sat down with Toby and Patty, that was as much uh, for them kind of interviewing us as me interviewing them. Yeah, uh, they, they wanted to know that it was a it was a young family that was passionate and that was going to you know pour their heart and soul into lose and, yeah. and keep it what it is and. and Potentially take it to the next level, and I, I think I hope anyway that, that they were confident in that. Um, we have a great relationship. Uh, the transaction went really, really well. Um, you know, yep. we, we both had to flex on, on things, and, and it was it, it was very good. And, and Toby actually stayed and worked worked here for the first three months. Uh, we get together for dinner often. Uh, we catch up. He was working here as an employee at that time yeah. as part of the transition, part of the contract of the exactly. kind of phase out the contract. Yeah, because Toby spent most of his time in the bakery. So Toby, Toby spent most of his time in the bakery, and then Patty really ran kind of the office side of it. Patty phased herself out over the course of the, the last year that they owned it. Um, but Toby was still really involved in the bakery, and it was it's his passion. It's what he likes to do. Yeah. And so I was concerned that the bakery um, may not be able to stand on its own two feet without him ensuring that that transition happened successfully. And so he helped me do that, and, and it was great just having him here too, because mm -hmm. every day we would hang out, and you know he'd tell me stories and kind of give me background on, right. on on different parts of the business. Right, that's fantastic. It's kind of an ongoing, kind of continuing the legacy of a place and understanding the the stuff that's not in not written down anywhere. Exactly, it's a tacit knowledge, really. Exactly, that he's got from 27 years right. of of running it. So, do you remember the day you woke up and this was your place? And said, I do. You do. Yeah. What what you hopped out of bed bright and early, no doubt. Uh, what was going on in your head. <laughs> so, so actually, we, we closed on July 1st. Uh, we signed all the paperwork uh, actually on, on that Friday. July 1st was a Sunday. And I met Toby here at, on Saturday night at about 11 p.m. And the night that it became mine, me and Toby were making crawlers together. You were making crawlers together? Yes. Classic uh, New England donuts. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I wish so, I just ate one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so crawlers are these, they're, it's, a, it's, a, it's a yeast raised donut. It's kind of a twist. Um, and so, yeah, I, I met him here, and, and me and Toby and his nephew, and then uh, John, our night baker, were here, and, and we made some crawlers. And he actually made a really big one that the next day with, uh, with the staff, uh, he presented to me. The, uh, he, he painted it gold, he, and he, he, we, uh, symbolically and, and, and actually, he passed me this giant golden crawler. Uh, passing, passing the baton from, from his family to mine. So interesting. So uh, there are a lot of longtime employees uh, here, front of the house, and, um, uh, wait staff. Um, I mean, I recognize them. They recognize me, and they were here before I got got here, and that's 26 years now. Yeah. Um, how, what did you say to them? 
because they're, I mean, they they own the place in sure. a sense, not yeah, in absolutely. any financial way, but kind of emotionally and was their life and their career. Yeah. And here's this kind of young guy showing up and no doubt they had some concerns. Yeah, you're exactly right. That was my biggest fear in, in all this was, uh, again, you know, lose, what is loose? It's a, it's a logo and it's a, it's a little building on Main Street. Um, and the thing that makes it what it is is the people, you know. Um, it's, it's Becky and Jenny and Zach, our chef, and Craig, the general manager. And, you know, all these people that, that really make this place run every day. And, and they are they are loose. Uh, and that's how it is with any company. You know, any company is just a logo. And then it's the people that, that make it what it is. And so I was very, very concerned going into this to make sure that I didn't alienate anybody, that I was able to keep the staff, um, and that, that um, I really I really gained credibility and, and respect and um, uh, I, I became part of this team, part of this culture. And so the day that, it, you know, th- that Sunday, Sunday afternoon when it was, uh, it was announced, Toby and Patty and I were here. We had, a, we had a staff meeting with the entire staff. And, you know, Toby said, hey, I, I want you to introduce you to Jared. And he's, he's Jared and Kaylin, my wife. Uh, they're the new owners. And there was a little bit of a gasp, but, you know, I think everybody was surprised. But the first thing I said was, you know, I love Luz. I've been coming here for years. I love it exactly the way it is, and I'm going to do everything I can to keep it, to keep it exactly what it is. And so it was, it was a kind of a constant thought and a constant challenge of mine to become part of this culture uh, and to to not change anything and to and to you know just listen and learn and watch and figure out how this place runs. You know, take notes on things that I, I you know, thought could be improved or even gain efficiencies or, you know, all these things that you learn in, in the course of being a, you know, being a Marine and, you know, being a lean Six Sigma Green Belt and, uh, and then over the course of the time getting my MBA. But it was, it was very, very important for me, really in the first year, which I'm not done with, with yet. Uh, we're getting there. We're almost, almost there. To ensure that I became part of the team and that it wasn't, you know, me buying lose. It wasn't. It wasn't my thing. Uh, I, I was joining this group. Yeah. Uh, and and that's that's really different from most startups, where, you know, in, in, a, in your typical startup, the one of the most important things is, is creating this culture. You know, creating the culture for the staff. Yeah. You walk and, in with this powerful culture already. Exactly. Exists, exactly. Right? Yeah. yeah. And that's what makes me uh, so. When you say, you know, you, you're told people you didn't want to change anything, you like it the way it is, of course you, you, you're going to change something because sure. you want to make it better. And you alluded to that already. But how do you, how do you kind of manage that balance from, you know, first of all, saying that up, up front and then people, that, like critical key people that you just described by name so we know who they are. Um, and at the same time, kind of make it better. Yeah, I mean, I, I think... Um I think it was key for me to to not take this um, authority, authoritative type of stance on, on, on anything in the beginning. Mm. You know, it was it was clear that I, that I was the new guy, you know, the new guy in charge here. But um, I really took a step back and, and just tried to learn everything I could. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that was important for everyone to see. You know, I, I did every job. In the first couple of months, I did every job. I, I hosted, I bust tables, I washed dishes, uh, I cooked on the line, I made the crawlers, I was, I was at the cashier, yeah, I served. Uh, and, and, and I think that was important for everyone to see that, that I, I was asking them for advice and I was asking them for, yeah. you know, for their buy-in mm-hmm. uh, to try and figure out how this place worked. And as far as making improvements, 
you know, everyone here, I think, could see that if we make the business better, we make the business stronger, it's going to be better for them. Uh, whether that is a stronger culture here, whether that's them making more money uh, or having a bigger Christmas bonus or, or whatever, you know, they, ensuring that they, they realize that you know, by making this business better, by doing these little changes, uh, it, it's going to be better for everyone. It was really important. And it wasn't me directing, you know, hey, we're going to do this thing because I said so. It's, it's hey, let's do this together. What do you think is the, is the right path? And, and really getting that, that buy-in from, from the entire staff. Right. You've already alluded to this a little bit, but maybe a touch more on how your military experience, 11 years in the military, in a commanding role, uh, in the way that we, you know, you described it, how that plays out here in yeah. running running an entirely different um, enterprise. Right, right. Yeah. So I think the first first uh, aspect is this feeling of being uncomfortable. Uh, you really get used to that in, in the military, in Marine Corps especially. You know, some of the some of the times that I recall the most, and some of the most fun times, were the times when me and my Marines were just miserable. You know, uh, I remember a time when we were in, we spent a month in Jordan, in the middle of Jordan, at this place called King Faisal Air Base. We it was part of an exercise where we were being supported by the ship, which was some 250 miles away, and they were supporting us with water, with food, with fuel, and it was. Not fun. Uh, again, for a month, we were eating me- meals ready to eat, these bagged meals. Uh, the flies were terrible because it was, it was the summertime. I could just go on for this, li- uh, this list of these things that were just very uncomfortable. Uh, and even throughout my career, you know, times when I was uncomfortable flying back to the ship at night. And you get used to it. And you, you get very comfortable with it. And uh, you learn how to deal with it. And you learn how to prioritize. And those were all things in my first couple days and first couple weeks were incredibly important. Uh, I didn't know what I was doing, you know, as I'm cooking on the line and doing dishes. But I was okay with it. And I, I took this position of being, you know, being able to learn and, and ask people for help and, and being humble and, and letting them know that I didn't know what I was doing, but I wanted help. Uh, and, and I think that was... That helped me to, to gain their respect. So, th- so that was one part, is, is, is being uncomfortable. Uh, the second part, I think, is, is just that sense of ownership. So, you know, walking into a culture like this, n- letting people know that I, I felt like they were owners, that, that, that I, I had to lean on them to, to continue this, and I still feel that way, and, and they should still feel that way. Uh, but that, then also my own sense of ownership as well. Uh, so, so seeing the things that were... You know, maybe not right or things that could be improved uh, and taking that on and doing it not because it's going to make more money but because it's going to make the people that work here happier and make, make them uh, make their jobs easier um, and then last I would say just just uh, command presence uh, being able to stand up in front of a group of people and, and talk and, and relay a mission and be able to state my, my commander's intent of kind of where I want the company to go and what my priorities are those are all things that are important and you know, if, if you have a leader who is not comfortable doing that, not comfortable talking to people, uh, it doesn't always instill confidence. And so yeah. making sure that they had confidence yeah. in me. And, and, and that's a really, I mean, that's a textbook great and real, it's not textbook, it's your life, but a uh, real, uh, real uh, great answer to that question. Thank you. You know, dealing with, dealing with amb- ambiguity and uncertainty 
Um, in the research world, that's always seen as one of the absolute key criteria for effective leadership because you can't possibly control everything. Instilling a sense of ownership. I think most people understand how central that is. And then communicating and having a presence that people are confident and feel good following you or being part of a, part of a team with you. Uh, those are uh, unbelievable skills. Those are the types of things we want our students in, you know, in, a, um, in an MBA program or anywhere else to, uh, to really... Uh, to really kind of incorporate into their into their being. Um, what did your wife uh, say about all this? I know she was sitting there at the table with you talking to the previous owners, but there were probably a few steps before you got to her sitting at the table. Sure. You know, this is an unusual thing to be doing given everything you've done before. Right. Uh, she was really excited about it, and I think part of it is just my excitement for her. You know, I, I again, I, I hadn't really found my path, and I, I realized that I wanted to run a business uh, and that this, this is a really, really cool business. Yeah. I am so lucky that, I, that I'm in this position right now. And I, I, I say that uh, totally honestly and, and, and um, uh, with, with full um, sincerity that I, I got really lucky by, by finding this, this deal, you know, this business, and just being in the right place at the right time. Uh, and so, so it, just, it just got me really excited. And, and I think, you know, just like everything else, if, if, if you're happy and, and with what you're doing every day and you bring that home, then that's going to lead to happiness all yeah, around. Right. And, right. and she's involved here. You know, she, we, we still have, uh, my youngest son is uh, still in preschool, so he's only half days. So she still is, is home with him a lot of the time, but she spends a lot of time in the bakery here. She helps me out with marketing and, and uh, a lot of the uh, kind of back office type of stuff. Yeah. And so as, as she's available, she's, she's helping out here. And then as, as our kids get a little older, she's going she's gonna to be more involved in the future. So when did you uh, so how did you meet your wife and when when was this in your kind of in your in your story yeah um, so I actually met her in high school um, we lived we actually lived about two hours apart from each other she lived in in a little town called West Stockbridge Massachusetts we had a mutual friend so so I went to high school with this person her name is uh, this, this friend of ours her name is Jessica and she would spend her summers in West Stockbridge and they were lifeguards together Kaylin my, my wife and Jessica were uh, were lifeguards and at some point they were you know sitting on the lifeguard chair and and Jessica said I, I, I have this friend that you guys would be perfect for each other <laughs> and several months later Kaylin my wife had like a homecoming dance or something like that and she had a date and it didn't work out and so Jessica calls me and says hey what do you do this weekend do you want to come up to a soccer bridge because Kaylin's got this dance and uh, she doesn't have a date and so I went up and I met Kaylin for the first time and we went to this dance together. Um, and that was that was all, all she wrote. <laughs> That's quite a first um, date too. It was a couple hours away. Yeah. And it's a, yeah. it's a, it's a dance of right. some type. It's right. not just let's meet for coffee. <laughs> right, right. Um, but Kaylin's an incredible person. She's, uh, she's got an infectious uh, laugh. She, she's got more empathy and emotional intelligence than anybody I've ever met in my life. And she's, she's just a wonderful person. And so uh, it took us, you know, obviously we're in high school. And then I went to the Naval Academy and uh, she went to school in Boston. So we, you know, we stayed in touch. We, we, we talked a lot in those years. And then uh, when, when I was finishing up at the Naval Academy, she actually moved down to Annapolis and, and she got a job down there. And uh, we moved in together a couple, couple months later. She, she moved in with me in Florida and then we got married soon after that. Yeah. That's Great story. Yeah. Great story. Um, yeah, I think sometimes about um, military spouses, 
uh, when when the, the military officers away and away on like really difficult business trip, um, and so she's not she didn't go into the military herself. Right. So, uh, well, how uh, uh, some of your deployments were probably long, as in, I don't know, they were more than a year at any point in time? Or? I never did. Uh, my longest one was 10 months. 10 months, long yeah. long enough. Yeah. How do you, so just on a practical basis, how do you stay in touch deal with that, yeah. when you're in, I don't know, Afghanistan or something? Right, right. It's hard. Uh, you know, you really have to work at it. Uh, the one thing I will say, though, is, so, so first of all, as I said, she's an incredibly strong woman, and, and she's, she's just a great partner. And she did such a great job of, of just taking over when I left, you know, um, taking ownership uh, of, of, our, of our house. She's, she's the CEO. Um, and so I, I never had any fear or I, it, it was never something that I had to think about, which is incredibly powerful when right. you're, you know, it's night, you're going into a landing zone where you're getting shot at and like, there's all these things going on. And the last thing you want to be thinking about is like, is everything okay at home? Um, and, and so I never had to think about that. The, the interesting thing, though, is that, you know, when you get back from a deployment, it's like you're dating again. Uh, those, are, those are some of the best times uh, I, I remember with my wife. Because, you know, you've been away for a long time, and you, kept, you keep in touch. You, you call and email a lot. But even that is, is limited. You know, you're always careful not to email every day at the same time or anything because if something happens, you don't want to. Sorry, you're careful not to email at the same time because? Because if something happens, you know, if you, if, if something, uh-huh. whether it's something routine where you, you know, you launch at a different time and. Yeah, she, um, you don't want to be expecting something exactly. at a certain minute. Yeah. Yeah. You, yeah. You, you just did that. Did you tell her you were going to do that? Yeah, she knew. Yep. Yep. We, it was kind of a pact that we had that yeah. she should never expect, right. you know, a phone call every day or anything like that just because, I mean, right. sometimes you couldn't do it. Right. And sometimes, uh, sometimes it was be- just better to be a little random uh, this way. It wasn't like, you know, why isn't this person sure. calling me? And so, uh, yeah, so, so getting back from deployment was, that was, those were always so fun, you know, yeah. first couple of weeks. And again, it's like you're dating again. You know, you have to get, get ingrained in your old life and get to know your kids again. Right. Uh, which is, terrible and great at the same time. So this is uh, this podcast is only audio, not video, but uh, Jared's got a huge smile telling us that uh, that story. Um, so one last question for you before we, we wrap up. In the advice department, imagine that you can uh, magically transport yourself back to when you were 20 or 21 years old, and you're kind of sitting right next to 21-year-old uh, Jared. What would, you, what would you tell him? What, what would you... What would you say? I, that's a hard question. I, I think I would tell my 21-year-old self to not to shy away from the hard road. Um, you know, I don't. I, I, I don't think that I took the easy road uh, too many times. But I think there are times in my life where I could have done things that um, would have been more rewarding. You know, maybe were hard that I that I didn't do, and, and I, I would have had the opportunity. You know, the things that I look back on that I'm most proud of, and that I that I feel the most uh, strongly about, are the things that were hard. You know, the things that were uncomfortable and, and challenging. And, you know, maybe I had a little bit of reticence to uh, to start doing, but ended up being some of the most rewarding yeah. times in my life. Yeah, I hear a version of that from a lot of people. You know, the cliche is 
get yourself out of your comfort zone. Yeah. Um, and then you can discover things, not just accomplish things, but discover things about yourself. Yeah. And that's that's such a central part of life. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Jared, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for being a guest here and letting us use the corner table here at Luz on a busy uh, on a busy morning. Jared Burke. Thank you.